Welcome to Prussian Socialism. This week, I'm going to talk about one of my favorite works of art or literature of all time. This is the medieval German epic poem called Das Nibelungenlied. The Nibelungenlied, that is the Song of the Nibelungs, was composed around 1200, although it does rely on some earlier material. It's written in Middle High German, that is an archaic form of modern German, and I should say it's it's technically the, the mid-stage, of course, between Old German and, and Modern German. So there's some uh, grammatical differences and some differences in, in words. But the poem is, is interesting for a number of reasons. It is interesting to compare it, and I, I'll talk about this later in the lecture, to poems like the Iliad, the Odyssey, or Beowulf, or uh, the French, the Song of Roland. But before I get into the particulars of the poem and the comparisons with other works of literature and, and some analysis of it, I want to first give you just a, a basic outline of, of what we're going to talk about. So first, I'm going to go through some of the characters and the plot. One of the difficulties about a work of literature like the Nibelungenlied is that it's hard to get into as a modern reader. Uh, you have to think, you have to remember that a medieval reader generally would have known uh, the material that was being presented. He would have at least heard the stories before. He would have been familiar with the characters. He, he actually already would have known what was going to happen. And he wouldn't necessarily have been reading. He probably would have been listening to it uh, told to him or, or spoken or even uh, chanted, people think. But as a modern reader, you're coming at this with very little information because a lot of these, uh, the, the, a lot of the information and a lot of the ideas and the characters and the plot lines just aren't part of our culture anymore. And they're certainly not a part of American culture or British culture. They may be, to a, to a lesser extent, part of German culture because some of this stuff has been perceived in folk memory and in stories. And you would, as a German, at least have heard a lot of these things as a kid or some of these things. Uh, the Nibelungenlied, I should mention, does provide the sort of uh, the stuff from which Wagner composed a lot of his, his operas. Uh, the Nibelungenlied stories are, are the inspiration for that. But as, a, as an English reader, you are confronted with a, a morass of names and events that don't really seem to make a lot of sense. The Nibelungenlied, like any epic literature, is not composed like a novel. So it doesn't have a very clear, it doesn't have as clear and as well tied up of, of a plot as we would expect from a proper novel. And that's because the Nibelungenlied is really two novel or two uh, stories sort of woven together uh, incorporating a lot of older elements that were expected by the audience to be part of the story, but it wasn't really understood. Uh, it wasn't really able to be smoothed out. And you kind of see the similar things with the Iliad or the Odyssey. Think, for instance, how in, in the, in the uh, Iliad, there are certain incidents that just don't really uh, make sense or like fit with the rest of the story that just have to be included because they were uh, known to be they were known to be part of the story of the sack of Troy and of the the, the Trojan War. So Greek readers or Greek listeners expected to hear some of these little stories uh, that don't really add to the plot necessarily. I mean, you you could find uh, particular uh, battle sequences that don't really seem to fit in with everything else. And the same thing is true of the Nibelungenlied. There are certain uh, aspects of, of the story that don't really seem to make sense. But that's because 
of it is a compilation and a sort of culmination of a bunch of different stories that have been put together in a sort of final form. And that's what we see in, in epic literature generally. So in approaching it, it's always best to get an overall picture of the characters, who they are, uh, if they might be at all real or if they're, they're purely fictional characters, and then to get an overall picture of the plot. And then from there, we can start talking more. So to go into overall characters and overall plot. So like I, I just said, there's the Nibelung Lied is strange because it's almost two separate poems. The first almost half concerns mostly the deeds of Siegfried, who is a hero, comes from the Netherlands. Most of the part uh, of the second half, which is a little bit longer than the first half, concerns Krimhild, the princess of Burgundy, and her attempts and success at getting revenge on her own family for their complicity and their plot to murder Siegfried in the first half. So in the first half, the main characters that you come across are, of course, Siegfried is the hero, Krimhild. And Krimhild is, is a character who's, who sort of ties the whole thing together. She's in the first half and in the second half. And the other characters that are in both halves, I should say, are her brothers, Gunther, the king of Burgundy, and then his two co-kings uh, and younger brothers, Gernot and Gisselher. And then uh, also Hagen, who is a, a relative of theirs and a, and a co-conspirator. And then there's also another hero named Dankwart. In uh, the first half, the main characters that don't really play a part in the second half are, as I said, Siegfried, the hero, and uh, his parents, and then also Brunhild. Uh, Brunhild is the princess of Iceland, and early on in the first half of the poem, Siegfried, the hero, and Gunther, king of Burgundy, team up to go and win her for Gunther to be his queen. In the second half, the main characters are Etzel, or so, I should say just the main character. The main characters are still, the main character is still Krimhild and her brothers, Gunther and the other uh, co-kings of Burgundy. But we also have Etzel, Ehring, Volker, Rüdiger, and Dietrich. Etzel is Attila the Hun. Now, why is he called Etzel and not just Attila? You'd expect Attila, wouldn't you? He's called Etzel because uh, his name has actually, this is, his name has stayed in the German language since ancient times. And you, you see in the name Etzel the, the, the sound shift that you would expect to occur in a name with a T in it. Um, this is sort of the same way that in English we say sit or set. German says sitzen or setzen. The T sound is changed to a TZ sound. Um, so what this indicates is that this word Attila wasn't just being taken out of books in the 1200s about classical times and reintroduced into the language, in which case we would expect it to be Attila or then just to call him Attila. It has undergone the sound changes that you would expect to have occurred throughout uh, the development of the German language since great antiquity, since before the second uh, high German sound shift. Uh, Etzel is, is an interesting character because he isn't exactly like Attila the Hun. Uh, he's portrayed as much more noble and much more generous and much more chivalric or uh, chivalrous than Attila the Hun. He's not the scourge of God and, and the uh, massacre of whole cities and the looter and the barbarian. He's portrayed as a much more uh, normal person. And then some of these other heroes, Ehring is the Prince of Denmark. Uh, Volker is a fiddler 
who is a uh, say you should say a battle comrade of Hagen. Uh, Hagen is one of the the Burgundians, and then there's Rudiger, who is a a a vassal of Etzel. Uh, he's a prince, or I should say, a duke in Austria. And then there's Dietrich, and Dietrich is Theodoric the Goth. He's called Dietrich in German, but he's the historical now, and, and in this semi-mythical, semi-legendary character of Theodoric the Goth. So the overall plot revolves around the assassination of Siegfried. So in the first half, Siegfried, the prince of the Netherlands, is portrayed, he's shown as, as a very um, noble young man, very tough. Uh, he's always seeking out uh, glory and, and, and honors for himself. And he asks his parents, the king and queen of, of Netherlands, uh, of the city of Xanten, for permission to go and woo this woman, Krimhild, uh, who is reputed to be the most beautiful woman in the world. So he travels down, or I should say up the Rhine, to Burgundy, and he goes into the court of Krimhild's brother, uh, the king Gunther, and immediately starts pissing everybody off. The first thing he does when he gets to court is he demands that they give their kingdom to him and that they fight him. Now, fight me, bro. And you would expect it's a sort of weird moral situation where you have elements in this story of epic and elements of romance. So Siegfried going in and just demanding to have everything is a sort of an epic thing. That's something you would expect an Achilles to do. But then the court, Gunther and Giselher and, and Gernot, the three uh, co-kings, they actually try to play it off. And they try, they, they try to be generous to Siegfried and without, of course, giving over their kingdom. But they want to uh, avoid a fight with him, which is very on, uh, would be very dishonorable, something Achilles or Beowulf would never do. But in this story, we shouldn't take it as weakness on their part because uh, the sort of romantic ideal was coming into European literature at this time. Um, there are other other stories in the same time, like Parsifal or um, some of the, the chansons de guest that have this romantic idea where people are portrayed as overly good. They are very nice and they should and they should be nice. They should be generous to people, to others, even when. It doesn't, according to the heroic, like tough mentality, you shouldn't be generous. There, that people will be generous. Uh, another aspect of this sort of mode of literature is, is the idea of courtly love. So Siegfried is is doing this courtly love thing too, because he's coming into the court of uh, the Burgundians, and he's doing it expressly for the purpose of wooing Krimhild, who he loves without ever having seen before. Now, I, we could never imagine Achilles doing such a thing. Achilles doesn't love Brysis or any of the other uh, women that are giving to him as as booty. He 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 just they're they're not important. Honor is what's important to a to a man like Achilles in the Iliad. But here we have this sort of double layered, partially epic, partially uh, partially romantic. But I'm 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 sorry, I'm getting too much in the analysis. Let me just t- stick here to the plot. So. Siegfried comes to the court of Burgundy and he's treated to games and he's treated to feasts. And then he proposes to Gunther 
that he wants to marry Krimhild. Gunther has his own idea of what he wants out of Siegfried, and Gunther wants to get a wife for himself, and his target is the princess of Iceland, a certain Brunhild. Now, the thing about winning Brunhild is that she is a sort of Amazon warrior princess, and that she, and she will only marry a man who can beat her in athletic games. Now, Gunther isn't so sure of himself, but with Siegfried's help, he thinks he can win. So the two of them, plus uh, Hagen and, and, and uh, the other hero, Donkwart, get in a boat and sail to Iceland to challenge Brunhild. And Siegfried is able to help Gunther win over Brunhild because he has a cloak of invisibility. And this is, yes, uh, probably where J.K. Rowling got the inspiration in Harry Potter for a, a cloak of invisibility. He puts on the cloak of invisibility and is able to help Gunther leap farther and throw stones farther than Brunhild, who is uh, rather angry at being beaten, but she has to give in. And she goes with the four heroes back to uh, Burgundy. Now, this is where the, sort of the story sort of takes off. We were expecting for Siegfried to be killed. Well, you know, how, how is that going to come about? I mean, the characters uh, like, like Gunther and, and his co-kings and Krimhild, everyone seems to like Siegfried, even though he's kind of a prick to people uh, sometimes. But overall, he's, he's proved his usefulness. The, the problem comes about because, for one thing, Brunhild will not give in to her husband. She gets married to Gunther, and on their wedding night, she won't put out. And she very embarrassingly, humiliatingly, takes her husband and overpowers him and then hangs him by his clothes on, uh, on the wall. It's a, a sort of a comic scene in the midst of this, this epic poem. And uh, Gunther, abashed and embarrassed, now hasn't been able to uh, assert his, his rights over his wife. And so he goes to Siegfried and, and says, hey, bro, would you help me out? Siegfried says, yeah, sure, no problem. Uh, next night, Siegfried comes in, Cloak of Invisibility, holds her down, and Gunther, uh, you know, completes the marriage. Brunhild is, uh, she, you know, as a result of this, as a result of losing her maidenhead, loses her physical strength too. And so now she's, it's like the problem is solved and they're just a married couple now. But the thing about Brunhild is that she's still angry and she's still a little bit vengeful about this. She, at another point, sees Siegfried acting as a vassal to Gunther. And, you know, Siegfried, in, in the meantime, has been able to get married to Krimhild as, as his just reward for bringing Brunhild back to Burgundy. But Brunhild sees Siegfried perform the sort of uh, service that a vassal would perform to his lord for Gunther. And she brags about this to Krimhild, the wife of Siegfried, asserting her rights, saying, I, Brunhild, have precedence over you, Krimhild, because my husband, Gunther, is the king, and yours is only a vassal. So typical woman fight. And, but it's not true, though. Siegfried and Gunther are actually equals. And the only reason that Siegfried had performed any vassal service to Gunther was because, again, he was being a bro and he was doing it to prove to, uh, <laughs> to Brunhild that 
Gunther was actually this really great man. He was he was just doing that sort of thing at the club that somebody might do where you introduce you you wingman, you introduce your friend to a girl, you introduce her to him and you say, "Oh yeah, my my friend's so cool." Or, "Oh, you, that's what he was doing." Uh or at least that's maybe uh, that's my interpretation at least. And Krimhild knows the truth and she knows that 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 Gunther and uh Siegfried are just bros and that they're on uh equal social uh, standing and so she uh, gets into a, a fight with Brunhild. Brunhild is angry about this. Brunhild then plots with some of the relatives of Gunther including Hagen especially but also um, her husband Gunther and his brothers to have Siegfried murdered. So a little later they take their their chance to kill Siegfried at a hunt Siegfried, you know, there's a there's a whole hunt scene, and and as in conformity with the standards of epic poetry and, and romantic poet uh, romantic uh, literature, Siegfried is portrayed as as killing lots of beasts in the forest and then bringing them back for a feast and everyone drinking and, and having a, a merry old time. But Siegfried is gets thirsty because they forgot to bring the wine, and there isn't enough to drink. So Siegfried wants to go get some water. Well, he's taken to go get some water, and he goes with with Hagen and the others. And as he's down at a brook drinking, Hagen kills him and throws a spear into, or uh, yeah, throws a spear into his back, and he bleeds out. Uh, Hagen, of course, runs away. Even though Hagen, Hagen is portrayed as treacherous, but he is uh, he's also portrayed as a hero, and we'll see that later. So Hagen runs away because he's afraid of Siegfried's strength. Even though Siegfried has a spear in him, Hagen knows like this guy is, is a hardcore uh, son of a bitch and he'll tear me to pieces if he gets his hands on me. So Hagen flees. Uh, Siegfried tries to pursue him, but he's too weak and uh, eventually he bleeds out. So then uh, everyone is very sad and they put on a funeral. But Krimhild knows the, knows the deal and she knows that her man was treacherously slain by her own relatives. And she weeps about it, and she's angry about it, and she's uh, she mourns. I think for I think it's for a year or two she's in mourning, and she's just inconsolable. So now we move to the second part of the poem, and this is the part where uh, we might call it Krimhild's revenge. Krimhild, after this long period of mourning, is invited, uh, or I should say, proposed to by Etzel king of the Huns, who lives in Hunland, which we should take to mean probably uh, Hungary. And the etymological, there's no etymological connection, but Pannonia or Hungary was sort of where Attila the Hun was based for parts of his uh, of his reign. And, and we'll see through through the geography of when, when Krimhild and then when the other heroes move to come to Hunland, wherever that is, that it probably is roughly Hungary that, that we're talking about where uh, Etzel's court is. So Krimhild goes and comes to she's finally convinced and goes and and goes to Hunland and then marries Etzel and then she's she lives there for 20 years and she's very happy except for the fact that she's she's happy er but she still wants revenge for the killing of Siegfried and she still wants revenge on her relatives for murdering her man so she concocts a plot after 20 years of of normal marriage and having another kid and living happily as queen of, of Hunland, but she isn't really happy. So she invites her relatives, uh, and she, she prevails upon her husband, I should say, to invite her relatives from Burgundy to Hunland uh, for a, a meeting. 
And so King Etzel sends out his messenger who travels across Austria and over to Burgundy, who comes before uh, Gunther and the other kings and Hagen and Donkwart and invites them to Hunland. You would think, or Hagen knows that this is treachery, or he suspects it. Hagen, the murderer of Siegfried, doesn't want to go and come into a land where Krimhild, the aggrieved spouse, has a chance to kill him or use other her men to kill him uh, because he knows that she's vengeful. The other ones uh, don't see it that way, and they think, well, I mean, according to the rules of, of um, hospitality, we can't be killed when we're there. And moreover, according to the rules of hospitality and of, and of good taste, we can't refuse the invitation. That would be impolite. So the Burgundians all get their stuff together and they pack up and they they travel all the way to Hunland. Along the way, they are met. Um, there's a few inc incidents on the way, but I will name only one. Uh, that's the meeting with Rudiger. Rudiger is a duke and a vassal of Etzel and uh, probably somewhere in the area of Austria. And Rudiger is very polite and he hosts the uh, Burgundian party. And that'll be important later. And then they're sent on their way. Rudiger later comes along too to, to Etzel's court. So finally, all of the Burgundians arrive in Etzel's court. And at first, it's a, a normal festival. They have uh, jousting and, and cavalry exercises to entertain the guests. They have feasting. Uh, there's a scene where everybody goes to church. And it's actually sort of a strange scene because the Huns are portrayed as pagans and the uh, the Burgundians are Christians. And so they the, the Burgundians go to Christian church and the, the Huns go to the pagan church, which I, I, it seems like in the poem they didn't, or the, the writer of the poem, the audience of the poem didn't really imagine paganism to be that different from Christianity. So uh, the pagans are portrayed as having gone to church. But then things start to break down and... It's sort of a, it's sort of like a, um, what's his name? Uh, Scarface director. It's sort of like a, it's sort of like Scarface. It's like one of these movies where things start to, there's little inc incidents, little insults, little uh, attacks that just are, they try to, that the, the characters try to sweep down and, and make uh, and cover up and ignore, but they just get bigger and bigger and bigger until it's a total bloodbath. So when in the first instance, incidents is the Burgundians are sleeping in the hall and Hagen and Donkwart, I think it's Donkwart also, Hagen notices outside that there's some Huns watching them and trying to, you know, potentially come in and murder them in their sleep, which is why Hagen had, had stood on watch because he thought that they might try to do that. The Huns uh, scamper off and nothing comes of it. That's the first warning. Then later, one of, in a, uh, in a cavalry exercise, they're riding what they call the Bohort, which is, uh, um, I don't know exactly what it is, but it's, it's described as being, I don't know if anybody knows what it is, but it's described as being a sort of cavalry exercise where you ride around with, with blunted lances and shields and you practice jousting, um, or, or throwing javelins from, from horseback. Uh, it's sort of, it's a military exercise and, and sort of a sport, but, um, in the, in the midst of the, of the Bohort, one of the. Huns is killed. I think uh, I forget. I think, I think it's Hagen who killed him. One of the Huns is killed at any rate, and that causes. That's about to cause an, an all-out war between the Huns and the Burgundians. But Attila, or Attila Etzel, thinks that it was just an accident, and you know accidents happen in these sort of 
difficult or these uh, military exercises. So could have been an accident. Etzel says, well, you know, pfft, it was an accident. I understand one of my men got killed, but, you know, it's risk of the game, right? It's kind of like, uh, you know, people get killed playing rugby and stuff. So people get killed sometimes uh, riding the bohort. And from there, it's all out mayhem. Hagen starts the action off right by murdering, or <laughs> slashing with his sword and killing the uh, son of Etzel and Krimhild. And then he goes and, and murders the boy's tutor to boot. And then just it's an all-out fight between everybody. The Burgundians are, held, are restricted to a hall, which they defend against numerous attacks by Etzel's vassals. It starts off, uh, it goes goes through each of Etzel's vassals, and, and one by one they come in with all their troops and are sl- uh, destroyed by Hagen and, and Gunther. Uh, Hagen is portrayed as just the most vicious fighter, one of the best fighters. And as you sort of see these different heroes, Earring and, and uh, Rudiger, coming on, they each uh, have... Um, Sort of a, there's a conflict here between the characters, like starting with Rudiger, for instance. Rudiger has an obligation both to Etzel on the one side and to the Burgundians on the other because he is Etzel's vassal, but he's also the guy who hosted the Burgundians. And so he, he feels conflicted. He doesn't want to get into the fight, but eventually he's prevailed upon that his obligation to his, his liege lord is more important than his obligation to the people that he has had as guests in his home and so he has to lead his men against the uh burgundians and a a scene of particular tragedy and and pathos happens at the on when rudiger comes on with his men to fight the burgundians uh hagen comes out and and calls out to rudiger and rudiger almost apologizes for having to attack and says i i don't want to do this but uh you know i i owe my lord uh allegiance and that's where things are and we're gonna have to fight to the death now uh i've i've i think we can all relate to that based on uh, the behavior of police in this country and hagen says all right come at me and and hagen slays him and all of his men and and the burgundians do at one point during the fighting krimhild who is has sort of moved from uh a Throughout the story, she's gone from being this this beautiful young virgin to being a happy wife to being a, an aggrieved, mourning uh, widow, and now she just becomes a, a psycho harpy in the last scenes of the book. She sets fire to the hall, and as the hall is burning down with all the Burgundians inside, they're not dying yet, and they uh, it's sort of a particularly bizarre scene and i think uh in a way uh, uh remark not remarkable but it's uh, it it really shows sort of the, the attitude that everybody has in this uh in the nibelungen lead and the the hero the particular brand of heroic attitude that the nibelungen lead sets forth is you can see in the scene where the hall is burning down and you would you would think everybody would be screaming and dying of, of fire, but no, they're thirsty. It's getting really hot. And so they're thirsty. What are they going to do? They can't drink. There's no water. There's no wine to drink. Uh, remember in the, in the, the hunting scene before Siegfried's death, he had, he couldn't find any wine. So he went to drink water. Well, in this scene, they have no wine to drink. They have no water to drink. So they drink blood. 
Hagen suggests, well, we drink drink the blood of our, our dead comrades, and they start drinking the blood of their dead comrades, which uh, quenches their thirst and allows them to fight on even uh, after you know even as the building is burning down. Finally, as all this fighting is is going on, Theodoric the Goth Dietrich come is is dragged into it, and he doesn't he doesn't want to fight with either side, but he wants to put an end to this he is finally able to uh slay the last vassals of uh gunther and hagen and it's just it, now all that's left are gunther and hagen and they are arrested by dietrich and brought before krimhild krimhild kills gunther and shows his head to hagen and demands from hagen the murderer of her husband that he tell her where he left the Rheingold. Now, if you're familiar with uh, the Wagner operas, you'll know that there's a there's an earlier scene in this work, or there's a, a sort of a famous scene in in this uh, Germanic heroic tradition where uh, a a hoard of gold has been hidden at the bottom of the Rhine, and in the Nibelungenlied, this hoard of gold has been hidden by uh, Hagen. He knows where it is, and Krimhild uh, has a claim on it, and she wants it back. Hagen of course, isn't going to tell this this woman uh, and refuses. So she kills him. All the other heroes, the remaining, all the people that are left, which is really just at this point, Etzel and Dietrich, are appalled by this. I mean, a woman killing even whatever their opinion may have been of Hagen, they certainly didn't think that this was appropriate. And there's a strange sort of ending where uh, deus ex machina this other hero, Hildebrand, appears into the story uh, to finish off Krimhild, and he kills her, and that's the end of it. Uh, Hildebrand would be known to the audience of the time as a hero who was a vassal of Theodoric the Goth of Dietrich, uh, and he Hildebrand is the uh, object or the, the subject of a very old Germanic poem. In fact, the oldest poem in German literature called Das Hildebrandeslied, that was uh, written in about Charlotte or written down about Charlemagne's time, but goes back to events of the uh, the, the barbarian invasion's time, the, the Volker Wanderung. So that's the overall plot. All right, so to do a little bit of analysis, I'm going to talk a bit about the historicity of the poem and then about the mode of the poem, why it is an epic and, um, and, and the elements of romance that it has. And in doing so, I will compare it to the Iliad and the Song of Roland and Beowulf, and maybe I'll mention the Odyssey. I also want to talk a bit about the motives and the, the overall social dynamics. I've mentioned uh, generally that the motives are the individual characters are, motiv uh, are driven by sometimes a mistaken idea or sometimes a correct idea. Um, a perceived insult or a misunderstanding. It's it's not very it's not as um, straightforward or as um, um, I was it brutish and stupid as you might see in a more uh, like a, a modern superhero movie, for instance. And then uh, finally, I want to talk about the relevance of this story to us in uh, our political situation in America today. As far as the, the uh, historicity, I don't have too much to say about this. Uh, I did order a book on 
the historicity or a theory of what elements of the Nibelungen Lied are historical. Unfortunately, it has not arrived yet. Uh, shipping from Germany is a pain in the ass nowadays. So uh, maybe I will be able to comment it, comment on the historicity in a future episode. There is very little information about this available in English, uh, but at least for the Nibelungen Lied, if you want to look at other epic poems, uh, for instance, the Iliad, it is very interesting, and I would I would much like to be able to talk about this, and, and maybe I will do a future podcast about it, or I'll mention it. It is very interesting to be able to compare what parts of a poem, an epic poem like the Iliad, appear to be real, uh, and what parts are, are clearly fictional. As you, you probably know, it was before the discovery of Troy, before Heinrich Schliemann discovered uh, the site of Troy in the, it was in the 1870s, it was by most scholars thought that the Iliad was purely uh, mythical, purely legendary story. Since the discovery of the site of Troy at a Hisarlik in Turkey, it's now uh, assumed that a lot of it is historical, and there's a, a dispute. Uh, one of the main scholars uh, for uh, generally arguing that, that uh, the Trojan War is a historical fact and elements of the, tr the story of the Trojan War are true is a, a, a certain J.V. Luch, uh, who was a professor, I believe, at uh, University of Dublin. It was somewhere in Ireland. And uh, on the other side, uh, the main uh, critic of the historicity of the Iliad is a M.I. Finley, um, whose real name was, of course, uh, Moses Isaac Finkelstein, I think. But if you look at the elements of the Iliad, there are some parts of it that are clearly have to be part of the time of the Trojan War. For instance, in one, or in, if you look at the military equipment particularly, a lot of, I mean, the military equipment in the time of Homer would have been made out of iron, mostly. At least the swords would have been. I mean, the, the armor might have been bronze, but the all of the most of the military equipment in the time of the epic poem of the Iliad itself, or the Trojan War, sorry, would have been um, iron, uh, and very rarely, uh, God, I'm sorry, misspeaking, would have been bronze, and very rarely iron. Uh, there is mentioned in the story of the Iliad a, a bronze mace, uh, one of the Greek heroes, I forget who carries it, um, but for the most part, and it was, that is historically true, in the Bronze Age, occasionally iron was used, they weren't very good at shaping it and using it, but there are also older things in the Iliad, things that are actually older than the time of the Trojan War, which about 1200 BC, uh, that have been discovered in the archaeological record and must have been passed down by word of mouth um, through in the epic tradition from poet to poet down to Homer's time when the poems were finalized. One of these things is the boar tusk helmet of Odysseus that he wears when he goes uh, on a, a night raid. A uh, boar tusk helmet is to think of a, a helmet with tusks of boar cut into little strips and then laid in a pattern around the helmet. This has been discovered in archaeological finds, and it is thought to have mainly been used around 1400 BC. So this would have been archaic and unusual to have seen on the battlefield in the time of uh, the Trojan War. But it was strangely still remembered in Homer's time, circa 750 BC or 800 BC, when he was uh, finalizing the, the poem. And so that just goes to is sort of... Um, Something you see in, in a lot of uh, epic poems, and you can point to instances of this in, in Beowulf uh, or in the, um, 
the Odyssey or, or in the Nibelungen lead, where there is some ancient habit that is remembered correctly and is di that differs from the habit of the poet's time um, but is still relayed, or even, as in the case of the Bortusk helmet, even older than the time of the poem. And it gives the poem a feel of the fantastic. It, it, it's, you're mixing different pieces of time, different, um, different habits and different, different uh, things from, from before and after. And it just gives the overall feel that this isn't really a real world, but it kind of is a real world. And that really adds to the excitement of the story. The, the one obvious thing that you can point to in the Nibelungen lead that is historical uh, are a couple of the characters, uh, Attila the Hun and Dietrich, that is Theodoric the Goth. Theodoric the Goth was king of the Ostrogoths in northern Italy right after the fall of the Western Empire, uh, circa 490 AD. Uh, Attila the Hun was, of course, the notorious uh, raider and attacker of Europe and uh, was defeated at the Battle of the Caledonian Fields in um, four, it was 451. But both of these characters from the time of the Volkerwanderung, the migration of barbarian tribes, of Germanic tribes into the Roman Empire, uh, were remembered as heroes and still in the story, even though they didn't maybe have the best historical records uh, or the, the history wasn't remembered exactly. I mean, if we look at uh, the betrayal of Attila the Hun of Etzel, he is very different from the way the classical authors would have portrayed him. Attila the Hun is the scourge of God in the classical authors. In the Nibelungen lead, he's a much more beneficent and uh, sort of normal uh, leader. The uh, the other one, uh, and I think I did, I mentioned this briefly, uh, Hildebrandt, the hero who comes out of nowhere at the very end of the poem to slay uh, Krimhild, is probably based on a real a vaguely remembered person who was a vassal of Theodoric the Goth and uh, Gunther the king of the Burgundians is probably also based on a real person from the from the 500 AD 5 or sorry the the 5th century AD moving on to the literary mode i want to bring up a a particular uh, system and that is the theory of literary modes by a certain Canadian professor and scholar by the name of Northrop Frye. Northrop Frye was uh, writing in the mid-20th century, and he was interested in trying to find a way to systematize how one analyzes literature. Now, this is a problem that, as you, you may know, Aristotle was very concerned with. Aristotle wrote uh, book The Poetics, where he tries to delineate what is the tragedy, what is comedy. Northrop Frye, uh, and, and perhaps a scholar could correct me, but I believe he is probably the first person to really make substantial contributions to the idea of systematizing literary analysis since Aristotle. And it's interesting because I'm sure uh, I certainly remember, I'm sure many of you uh, also had the same experience in high school and in college, where you had to write a paper about a book and your teacher always told you, write anything you want to. Write any argument as long as you can back it up. You could say, you could read uh, The Great Gatsby and argue, argue that uh, Gatsby is a fag. Uh, as long as you can back it up, this is, uh, you know, this, this is worth it. Of course, that is absurd. And this is <laughs> without going off on a tangent about the 
weakness of the humanities and, and the degraded state at which they are at, literature can be approached in a method, in a, maybe not scientific, because it's a humanity, but at least in a method, in a, uh, in a way with method. You can try to figure out and define what is it about a story that makes it a myth or a tragedy or a comedy or an epic or a, a, a satire. Northrop Fry's proposal, and this is coming from, uh, he, he actually gave several proposals, but I'm, I'm going to work off of one of his proposals that I found particularly compelling, is the idea that there are five, and, and this is a bit of a simplification, and, and uh, to listener be warned, I, I read this book uh, maybe five or six years ago, so I'm a bit hazy on the details, but basically it comes down to this. There are five literary modes. There is myth, there is epic, there is tragedy, there is comedy, and there is satire. What differentiates these five things is that in is the relationship between the protagonist, the main character, and the audience. And there are two aspects to this relationship. There is the moral aspect and the qualitative aspect. So take, for instance, myth. In myth, the protagonist is usually a god or a hero. So he is qualitatively, he's better than us. He's a god or he's a hero. He has immortality. We, the audience, don't have that, so we, we have to look up to him. But he is also morally better than us. He can't do anything wrong. He's beautiful. He's Apollo. He's, he's, he's Zeus. Um, he's a perfect man. When you move into epic, uh, the protagonist is a little bit lower. He's, a, he's either a man or a hero. And he is, but he is morally better than any man could really hope to be. I mean, maybe Alexander the Great you could compare to Achilles or to Siegfried or to Roland or Beowulf, but very few men could possibly measure up to the hero of an epic poem. That being said, the hero of an epic poem is still a man. And so he has perhaps some flaws, although if he has. If he has any moral flaws, you're start, it's starting to be a tragedy and not really an epic. Um, if you look at different heroes in, in different epics, uh, Achilles or um, Siegfried or Roland, they're all killed and they're all, they have to be slain treacherously though. They cannot be killed in a fair fight and they can't be killed because of some real moral wrong that they've done. Uh, Achilles, you could argue, is, is overly aggressive and, and vengeful. You could argue that Siegfried was, was overly confident and overly brash in his dealings and his sort of violation of the moral code. Um, you, could argue, you could argue that Roland was, was, was reckless in, in not hurrying along and, and trying to get out of the ambush um, in the Pyrenees Mountains. But generally speaking, in an epic, the hero is, he can do no wrong. Tragedy, as, as you'd imagine, is, is one step down from that. Think of uh, Hamlet or um, uh, Macbeth. They have admirable qualities about them. They're, they're the sort of man that you might want to be, but they have definite problems and definite weaknesses. And so the, the, the protagonist of a tragedy is, generally speaking, our level, our moral and our, our quality level. He's a man, and he is basically of the same morals as you and me maybe a little bit higher. Usually it's it's only interesting he's a little bit higher, but our level are a little bit up. When you get down to comedy and satire, the protagonist is lower in quality, in, in moral quality than the audience. That's what makes it funny. You think of Jerry Seinfeld. 
it's funny because he's a Jew and because he lives in New York and he has stupid little adventures. It's it's funny. It's he's he doesn't he doesn't attempt he doesn't try to be anything better. He's 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 sort of pitiful in his way. Um, and that's why it comes across as funny. Uh, humor. Uh, there's there's much debate about what makes things funny, um, but I, I think Northrop Fry was on to the correct answer when he when he outlined w what makes a comedy a comedy, and what makes a comedy is the protagonist being lower than the audience. That's what makes something funny. You can laugh at something when uh, somebody is is lower in moral quality than you, and then when his actions lead to things that cause him problems that seem to be deserved. Uh, the buffoon slips on a banana. It's funny because he's a buffoon and he's not being careful. He slips on the banana. He gets, he lands on his ass. That's funny. What makes a satire or the, the, the a very, which is a more extreme version of this, a satire requires for the protagonist who, to be lower than us, but also for him to suffer a disproportionate punishment. So in a satire, think of um, uh, my favorite movie, Dr. Strangelove. In Dr. Strangelove, the characters are all buffoons. They're all, they're all clowns. The president's a moron. The, the generals are all uh, overly aggressive and, and crazy and, and slightly incompetent. Uh, and they all get nuked in the end. I mean, they, they, they're morons in positions of authority. And then rather than just being humiliated or thrown out of power as they might be in a comedy, everyone's destroyed. Uh, so they, they suffer a punishment that's actually worse than what they deserve based on their low but not despicable moral quality. On a side note, I would like to mention, and I think you will find this entertaining, that this, <laughs> this means that the Holocaust, if we take it as a piece of literature, as a story, is necessarily satirical. It is hilarious. The idea of these poor, innocent people who have done nothing wrong being gassed and tortured and humiliated and starved to death and destroyed with no explanation of the motive of the person doing it to them is intrinsically hilarious. And Northrop Fry points this out. I mean, of course, he doesn't say the Holocaust, but he points this out when he is explaining Later on in this essay that I'm, I'm speaking of, and I'll, I'll post the book I got it from, he's talking about how satire necessarily leads into myth. There is this strange thing that happens in satire where if you take it too far, it, start, it is no longer funny, and it becomes something that you have to take at face value. Uh, think, for instance, of the story of Jupiter or Zeus and... Uh, Europa. Uh, Zeus comes in the form of a bull and he fucks Europa. You could see how this would be satire. A bull screwing a woman is ridiculous and grotesque. But if it's a god doing it, it, it this this story probably started out as as a sat as a uh, sort of a body tale, and. It was so over the top that it was no longer taken as as a joke, but taken as um, as serious. And if you don't believe me, I'll give you an example of uh, a modern sort of thing that I think most people listening to this will understand. Murdoch Murdoch fits into this sort of zone between 
satire and myth. You think about some of the first episodes where William Luther Pierce is portrayed as, as coming into the, to the story. And, Gas the cakes! It's funny. He's not meant to be taken seriously. You can't take him seriously. Murdoch Chan uh, worshipping Hitler uh, while her, her, her buddies... Um, they, they can't even get the, their shit together. It's, it's, it's funny. But at a certain point, like it, it keeps going and going in the different episodes. The more ridiculous they make it, the more these characters go from they're They're sort of below us in a way. I mean, you think of Murdoch Chan and the Chans. They're, they're about at our moral level. They have the same problems that we have. But they start to, uh, and, and the people around them, uh, like William Luther Pierce and GLR and the, the other fantastical characters, it starts to become inspirational at a certain point. Actually, I was watching the episode lately um, where William Luther Pierce is coaching a basketball team and they can't win against these these Negroes uh, because they're being coached by Jordan Peterson, who's a moron. And the the the, the players on the team, the Chans and and the other players are are, are kind of losers and they can't figure out how to win. But with William Luther Pierce comes in and he's just ridiculous. He's over the top. He's like, you're going to be a team. He's, he puts on the whole Hitlerian uh, thing and he welds them together into a team and they win. It's no longer funny. Now it's become inspirational to the audience. Uh, and you see that in stories like like Zeus and Europa. Um, but anyway, I, I brought up the this theory of literary modes because I particularly want to talk about epic. Epic poetry, uh, like the Nibelungen Lied, like the Iliad, uh, Song of Roland, Beowulf, it usually, it, it has to have a character, or, or the main characters have to be someone who is uh, better and stronger than us. And it is interesting to compare these stories, uh, these four epics, with regard to the way that they treat their enemies and the way with, uh, with which, or the way they treat women. The case in the Nibelungen Lied is perhaps the most uh, complicated, so I want to start off with the case of... I'll take first, uh, because it's the simplest example, the Song of Roland. The Song of Roland is a medieval French poem concerning a raid by Charlemagne into Spain to fight the Muslims. In the Song of Roland, Roland is, is the hero, he's the, the Charlemagne's best fighter, and he's ambushed in the mountains in the Pyrenees between France and Spain. And there's a bloody, bloody fight. Uh, the Frankish knights are cleaving the Saracens in half, and the Saracens are cleaving the French in half. And the enemy, the Muslims, the Muslims, are portrayed as just evil. There's no, they are pagans. They are worshippers of Apollon. It's it's sort of a, it's clear that the author doesn't know or doesn't care about who what his enemies' actual beliefs are. He portrays them as sort of a weird mix of Greco-Roman pagans and Muslims, but the Muslims are portrayed as just completely enemies. They're not. There's nothing noble given about them. Whereas if you think about the Iliad, the betrayal of the Trojans. The Greeks are given a good reason to go and attack Troy. It's because Paris has carried off Helen, and that's offended the honor of her husband, Menelaus, and it's, defend it's offended the honor of all the Greeks because they 
they owed they they owed they had uh they owed something to Menelaus and his brother uh Agamemnon in that they had agreed that they would assent to whoever uh married Helen. So there is a a a reason given for the Greeks attacking the Trojans, but the Trojans themselves are not portrayed as evil. I mean, Paris is portrayed as cowardly and and despicable for the most part, but Priam is not the king and Hector is portrayed as as very noble. Uh and uh, sort of the same can be said of, well, I, not the same. The Odyssey and, oh, to add another one, Virgil and Neod are, are sort of in an in a in-between zone where the, the antagonists are a mix of gods and, and witches and, and real men. Uh, there's, there's no body of, of, um, of enemies in the same way that there is in the Iliad or in uh, the, um, the Nibelungen, well, in, uh, sorry, in the Song of Roland. The other one to bring up is Beowulf. Beowulf, the antagonists, are three supernatural monsters. It's Grendel, Grendel's mother, and the dragon. Uh, they're, they're just supernaturally evil. Uh, I think in that sense, Beowulf is most similar to the, uh, the Song of Roland. But the Nibelungen lead is different because and strange because nobody is really portrayed as completely evil. Hagen, the murderer of Siegfried has his reasons for killing Siegfried. And it's a treacherous act, and it's condemned. But Hagen, especially in the second half, is portrayed as a very aggressive and very honorable and brave and tough knight. So it's hard to condemn Hagen as a villain outright. Likewise, Krimhild. Krimhild starts off as a blushing young girl and then a, a wonderful wife, and she is wronged. She has... Very good reason to want revenge on her relatives for the killing of her husband. Likewise, the Huns. Uh, one could think that maybe the Huns should be uh, the bad guys in the Nibelungen lead because they are uh, ethnic outsiders and barbarians. But they aren't really shown that way uh, until the Hun is, is portrayed actually better than he comes across in, in most history books. And the Huns themselves only fight the Burgundians because they have to. Uh, they're forced to by uh, what amounts to, at least initially, misunderstandings and mistakes or uh, just mutual suspicion and insults that slowly escalates into a bloody all-out war. I think this is interesting in that it gives a... Uh, we're seeing in the Nibelungen lead sort of a development of the moral system. We're going, uh, in, in when this was composed, about 1200, you're going from a more primitive moral system, and perhaps one might say more efficient, but I'll, I'll leave the criticism aside. You're going from a primitive moral system of revenge for wrongs, revenge for slights, reward for good things, to a little bit, and, and a strict friend-enemy distinction, to a little bit more of um, a Christian sort of ethos or a romantic ethos where heroes are supposed to do good things. They're supposed to assume the best in people. They're supposed to try to uh, accommodate people. They're supposed to give gifts. Uh, they're supposed to be open-handed with their friends, even with strangers. It's mentioned many times in the Nibelungen lead that uh, Siegfried's father or Siegfried or Gunther or Etzel are open-handed with their guests, even 
foreigners, even paupers, even strangers. Uh, and that just shows how powerful they are, that they can afford to be nice to other people. Now, I'm not saying that that's a good thing. I think in our day and age, that's actually a problem. But you could see how in 1200 in Europe, when you're it's only been a few centuries since paganism. It's only been a few centuries since uh, bigger states started to be established. Think of the, the Holy Roman Empire or France that had started to become real states uh, at about this time. You can see why that more Christian idea would, that um, more chivalric and generous idea, assuming the best in people, would be um, spoken well of in, in a poem like the Nibelungen Lied. I, uh, the other, the other sort of interesting comparison between these epic poems is in their treatment of women. The Iliad is the most like classical Grecian attitude toward women. Women in the Iliad are they are not moral actors. In Homer's Iliad, I, I will contrast Homer's Iliad with sort of um, secondary renditions of Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad in the Middle Ages and in modern times, think of movies like Helen of Troy from the 1950s, ha they have to take a position on why was Helen going with Paris? Was she kidnapped or did she elope with Paris? And so in movies like Helen of Troy, it's portrayed as a romance. They love each other and Menelaus is brutish and, and evil. And so that's why Helen and Paris run off. In other versions, you might other tellings of the story it, it might be shown as uh, a kidnapping or a rape but to homer i think the question never even occurred it doesn't matter why helen went off with paris the 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 focus of homer is on the violation of the bro code of what Paris did in violating the hospitality of Menelaus and of the Greeks as a whole. That's what's interesting to Homer. And we can see this also in Homer's portrayal of uh, Briseis, the girl who is given as uh, a loot to Achilles, and who at the very beginning of the Il Iliad is the cause of Achilles' wrath, because Agamemnon, the prince of the Greeks, the, the, the primus inter pares, the first among equals of the Greeks, has had to lose his allotted woman uh, because she's the daughter of Apollo or the daughter of the priestess of Apollo who has been raining down um, plague on the Greeks. So Agamemnon has to give up his woman. Therefore, he says, well, obviously I should get my number two's woman. And Achilles is fucking angry. And it, it isn't portrayed. It, it, Homer is not at all concerned with the feelings of this woman. It just, it's irrelevant. Like what matters is that Achilles has, that his uh, rights have been violated by Agamemnon. And Agamemnon is eventually forced to, to realize that when he can't have a war because his main hero won't fight. Contrast that now with some of these other poems. Uh, if, I, if we go through Beowulf, there really aren't any women. Well, there are, there are but they're not really important. Uh, Song of Roland, I, I read it in, in middle school, so I, I don't remember a lot of the details, but I, there aren't any women, as far as I remember, at least that, that really play a role. 
And then if we look at women are portrayed, actually, look at, look at the Odyssey. Um, women are portrayed as either as a, there's a sort of a spectrum from uh, witches and enchantresses to Penelope, Odysseus's wife, who is portrayed as, as very noble and very good. So in that, in that regard, I guess Homer maybe did have, if we assume Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, were the same person, uh, Homer perhaps had something to say about women in the Odyssey, whereas the Iliad is only about Brocode. But the Nibelungen lead is very European, very Germanic in its treatment of women. It, I mean, in a way, Krimhild is the main character, which really is bizarre if you compare it to the other the other epics we've been talking about there also is uh she has a certain she's has agency about her and i'm sure feminist scholars have all sorts of theories about this but it it is i don't really want hmm, i don't feel like i'm competent to talk too much about it but it is interesting to note that in uh in the nibelungen lead we have an example of an epic poem where a woman is sort of the main character, uh, and even though she, she she certainly goes beyond her feminine role toward the end, where she is ordering men to their deaths and taking vicious blood revenge on people, um, she even these even these uh, Nordics get a little bit fed up with her uh, overstepping her bounds, and they have to bring in Hildebrand to come and finish her off because she's just really done something very tasteless in, in killing Hagen even though he kind of had it coming. Um, but what all this goes to show is that the the driving force in the Nibelungenlied, and as in any great literature, is not some sort of good versus evil thing. It's a conflict between people who have reasonable motives, and there are misunderstandings and uh, in some cases, intentional insults, but it is very reflective of the real world. And that's what's compelling about it. That's what makes it good literature. If we compare this to what we see today, what is accepted as, as literature or storytelling in modern Jew America, we have things like superhero movies. Superhero movies have no interest in good or evil. Or they have no interest in, in, in real storytelling, in real uh, moral conflict. An enemy is an enemy. Or, or uh, the best example would be something like Saving Private Ryan. The Germans are simply evil. They deserve to be killed. The good guys are the Americans. And you should feel bad. And, and, and the only way that you can get pathos, you can get the, the audience to feel sad when you're watching something maudlin and disgusting like Saving Private Ryan is by showing some guy's guts spilled out. Because everybody understands like how... like how beautiful and how good a young man is and to see his guts spilled out is is disgusting and horrible and so you you get that pathos but the pathos that the audience feels from saving private ryan is nothing like you would feel from a real story where that same feeling of tragedy comes from the conflict between the two people who need not to be in conflict as in the case of rudiger and uh hagen in in the nibelungen lead where they are forced to fight one another, even though they share obligations and they re- and and they really don't want to fight each other, they have to fight for honor because of these uh, the the feudal obligation that that Rudiger has to his lord Etzel and and the contrasting 
obligation of hospitality that he has to Hagen. I wouldn't actually, going along with, with the superhero movies, it's interesting that these superhero movies have had to start to, I, know I haven't really watched any of them, so any, any faggot on the internet can correct me on this, but there is, in the sort of Batman movies, I think they have to start talking about um, Joker and they have to make him more of a character. Well, it's because the story is boring. So you have to make the villain seem a little bit more interesting. And then you have to have a whole movie about the villain. Um, as the, the recent Joker movie from a couple years ago shows, because people are just, as much as you try to, the, to ram this swill down their throats, this boring Judaic good versus evil um, Superman, Spider-Man, he's good and he's just fighting these bad guys who have no real motive. And as much as you try to ram that down people's throats, people get bored of it. So they have to come up with a real story. And, and to come up with a real story, you have to give a, a motive to the bad guy. And you see that also in, um, uh, speaking of World War II movies, you see it in uh, Inglorious Bastards, where the most interesting and noble character is, of course, the German. One more thing about the um, that other superhero movie, um, the Joker movie. Going back to Northrop Fry and his literary modes, I watched that movie, and I think a lot of us did, and I, I laughed hysterically. That movie is in that middle zone between satirical and mythical. It is hilarious when Joker, who is kind of a loser, is sitting on the train, and he's getting attacked by these, these thugs for just being a loser. He's getting picked on by the bad bad boys um and then he just executes them and blows their brains out on the on the, on, the, on the train terminal it's hilarious it's hilarious because he is at a lower moral level than the audience and these these people who are attacking him are also at a lower moral level than the audience you're seeing a fight between you're just seeing a bum fight really and it results in a vicious <laughs> sick murder it's hilarious there is no way to watch that movie without thinking it's funny. And I actually would go so far as to say that uh, it, it's a real indictment of our society that people watch that movie and don't find it funny. It is dis it's weird and messed up, but it is it falls objectively into a into the literary mode somewhere between satire and going almost into myth. I think the only way that one can find it not funny is if one assumes that Joker is the bad guy. If you assume and you accept as a, a, a premise that Joker is the bad guy, then I guess it, it, it can't be funny. And that's, I mean, sort of the same way that, that we see in World War II movies where Germans are just taken as the bad guy. So if you assume that the Germans are the bad guys, then you can start to give them interesting characteristics. Well, you need to to make the story interesting. And um, that's that's where you get the real... Uh, uh, the real the real drive of the whole story is by making the villain interesting because you can't make the good guy interesting um, because you haven't got a real story. But anyway, that that rant aside, I, I, I do want to wrap up on a couple things about the Nibelungen lead. So as you can you can tell from the plot line, the main motive of the whole thing, the main driver is these conflicts that come up because of differing obligations and misunderstandings. There is also uh, a, a motive of revenge. And this is, it is expected that 
one should take revenge. It's in the heroic ethos, one has to take revenge. In the romantic ethos, it's sort of sad that one should take revenge. An older poem like uh, like Beowulf just takes for granted. Well, Beowulf doesn't really talk about revenge. Sorry, I should say. In in older literature, think of the Icelandic sagas. And I say older relative to European civilization, excluding the classical. In in Nordic poetry, revenge is just taken for granted. In the sagas, you, you just have to take revenge. In the Nibelungenlied, as a result of this sort of more romantic uh, influence, one still has to take revenge, but it's lamented. But in the older poetry, it would be rejoiced in. Uh, finally, I've sort of already touched on this, but I do want to speak about the relevance of this poem, the Nibelungenlied, to us uh, and to our, our movement. The best thing about the Nibelungenlied and why I encourage all of you to read it is because it is the best mode of literature. The epic mode of literature is the most ennobling. It's the thing that you will feel most inspired by. If you read the story and you really absorb all of the, 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 the background of the story and the characters and the action, it's inspiring. It makes you want to be like one of these great heroes. And it's also, it's also more realistic, even though, granted, it, it, it is in a way sort of a, a medieval comic book. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of things that are overdone, overstated. There are, the love is greater love than in the real world. The, the killing is more brutal killing. The, uh, the, the generosity of the kings and the princes is more than in, in the real world. There's something fantastic about it. But the moral system the way that people act is still real. And the heroes in epic poems and in the Nibelungen lead are even more honorable and more brave and tougher than almost any man. And it is no accident, I think, that many great men loved epic poetry, epic stories better than anything else. Alexander is uh, famous for having supposedly slept with the Iliad under his uh, pillow. Alexander was by no means an uneducated man. His teacher was Aristotle. But as much as he may have loved Aristotle and known Aristotle, he still loved the epic poems, uh, the Iliad, the story of Achilles, better than anything else. Other, uh, another good thing about the Iliad, or sorry, the, uh, the Nibelungenlied, is this is probably the one uh, epic poem least known in the West, other than uh, the Song of Roland uh, in French. In our educational system, as you all probably know well, you have this sort of conservative tendency where conservatives will, they will know uh, very well the Greeks and the Romans, or at least somewhat. They, not, they won't well, know well like the old is. I know they're going to speak Greek and Latin, but they'll know fairly well uh, Aristotle and Plato and maybe Homer. And they'll also know the Anglo tradition, so they, they might, you know, they'll pretend to know a little Beowulf, but they will have almost no idea about France or Germany or Italy. Um, and the Nibelungenlied is, you know, if, if, if we take uh, Hitler's word that one cannot understand socialism if one does not understand Wagner, well, one cannot understand Wagner if one does not understand the Nibelungenlied. And I would actually argue further that it's hard to understand Wagner without understanding the uh, previous composers uh, like uh, Bach and Beethoven and Mozart. Uh, it's hard to jump into a 
a highly developed art form like Wagner's operas without knowing the art forms that went before that and that inspired that. The Nibelungenlied is almost at the very beginning of the Western um, European literary tradition. And I say that because it is very little influenced, uh, and Beowulf and is similar in this regard, it is very little influenced by classical culture. One need not have read any classical literature to read the Nibelungenlied or Beowulf, and not, not to say that classical literature is bad, but the Nibelungenlied is less derivative. And, and Beowulf is too. However, uh, Beowulf is certainly more primitive. Uh, Beowulf is almost a purely ancient Germanic poem. The Nibelungenlied is, uh, as I've been saying, sort of moving into that romantic mode. Certain compromises have had to be made in the structure and in the plot to make it palatable to the tastes of somebody in 1200. And the other interesting thing about the Nibelungenlied is that we have older versions of this same Germanic story uh, preserved. We don't have older versions of the Iliad. Uh, we don't have older versions of Beowulf. We simply have the poem as it is. With the Nibelungenlied, there are several Nordic epics that tell the same story of the same characters, or, or roughly the same story, but working with the same poetic material and legendary material. And in the older epics, or the, the uh, Nordic versions of this story, it's interesting because the moral system is that older, her, that older, more heroic system, and it is not influenced. It is less influenced by Christianity and by the the romantic, chivalric attitude. So, in the older versions, you'll remember when we talked about the plot, I explained how Brunhild, when she on her wedding night with Gunther, refused to put out. And so she comically hangs him on the wall, and then Siegfried has to come the next night and, and help his bro out and put on the cloak of invisibility to make her go through with the act. In the older versions of this story, it is a much more brutish thing. Siegfried, in, in one of the versions, comes in and, and rapes her, and there, thereby she loses her strength, and then Gunther can have his way with her, <laughs> which is... Uh, you know, to, to our attitudes and to the attitudes of people uh, later on is uh, grotesque. The idea that you're going <laughs> to... That, that right there should be the impetus for the Burgundians to have their war with Siegfried. If, they're going to, if Siegfried is going to rape their queen then, and, and, and violate the rights of their king, then that should cause the fight right there. But it's a much more... Uh, in the Nibelungenlied, this is this sort of <laughs> archaic and barbaric way of uh, attitude has to be smoothed out. You couldn't tell that story to an audience in 1200 and have them take it at face value. They they would find it probably uncouth. And so in the Nibelungenlied, we see that it's been changed. So now in in the story, um, it's it's more of a, a comic thing and less of a uh, I don't know gr grotesque and, and brutish thing. There are some other elements of the Nibelungenlied that if you compare with the older versions, um, you see how the poet uh, had to change it. Uh, one other thing, and I sort of mentioned this at the beginning, is the, like any epic poem, the Nibelungenlied incorporates, uh, has to incorporate elements of the story that the audience was expecting to hear. And I didn't, in my summary, mention a lot of the key plot points 
simply because it's hard to tell the story without and keep the the, the main thread of the action going without refer and with bringing in all these other parts of the story. So, for instance, uh, I didn't mention in my telling of the story Siegfried's journey to Nibelungenland, where he meets uh, the troll uh, Albrecht. This this is where he gets the the cloak of invisibility from, and this sort of plays into the rest of the story with with how the the Nibelung gold is buried or sunk under the Rhine River, and that's why uh, Krimhild kills Hagen at the end. A lot of these elements that are pieces of the story that were expected to be that were associated with Siegfried or with Krimhild or with some of the other characters that had to be included because the audience felt that they had to be there. But you see that if this story had been conceived as a novel um, in the mind of, of one author, that they would not have been included or they would have been um, incorporated better. So it's sort of interesting to look in, in this type of literature, in epic, you can see different layers and uh, scientists, or I should say uh, hum humanitarian scholars over the centuries, particularly since the 19th century, have, have done a very good job of trying to break down these stories and figure out where the different layers are and when different parts were put in, were they put in before the story was written down or were they put in, uh, you know, only when the story was put down in final form uh, in the case of the Nibelung and Lied in 1200. Final things I want to talk about. Uh, I mentioned gay superhero movies and their literary mode. And, and in a way, you can see how superhero movies are similar to the Nibelung and Lied. Uh, because the Nibelungen lead is this story where there is just brutish killing and almost comical killing and fighting and slaughter. Uh, you can see where white people develop a taste for this sort of thing. But the Nibelungen lead is much more mature morally than a superhero movie. And it, it, it counts on the audience being a little bit more mature morally. And, it, and if you aren't, then by reading it, you become a little bit more mature. Final comparison I want to make is uh, Turner Diaries. I think this is a, an audience favorite. Uh, Turner Diaries, of course, by William Luther Pierce. I often hear it said that the Turner Diaries are not good literature because the characters are flat or the, the, the um, overall story is wooden or, or, or what have you. I disagree with this. I'm not going to say that, that William Luther Pierce is like the greatest writer of all time or the greatest uh, novelist, but I don't think he was trying to be a novelist. The Turner Diaries makes more sense, I think, if one looks at it as an epic, sort of a, not a, it's not a poem, but as an epic story. The character, the characters are, hmm, the characters are, I mean, technically, technically that one has to be a tragedy because the main character um, fails in one of the, I forget the exact details, but I remember he fails in his duties and then is, is reduced to probation and then he has to, at the end, f uh, overcome his probation by sacrificing himself for the, the, the team, for the unit. Uh, so technically, I think it's tragedy, but it does have certain aspects of epic to it. Um, for instance, or, or, and certain similarities with the Nibelungen lead in that People are nobler in the Turner Diaries than in reality. They are more savage. They're more brutish. They, they want revenge and they get revenge. Uh, they, they avenge wrongs. And in the case of uh, one, one instant in the story, there is a, 
a conservative libertarian found in the ranks of the resistance movement, and then he has to be, uh, he is tried and he is, he sets forth his reasons for his betrayal of the movement, and it's just conservative, mealy-mouthed uh, loserism, and so he has to be executed. And to, I think, an audience that, a normie audience, or to a, a an audience of people who aren't, who don't really understand the world as it is, this comes across as brutish and undeserved. But if you're looking at it with the sort of epic heroic mentality, it goes without saying that he has to be executed. It's not even a question. And it's not even funny, really. Like, you, you might look at it, this as satire and say, well, he's, he's morally lower than us. And so when he's executed, it's... Um, it's it's sad or it's um it's funny because he doesn't deserve to be executed it's not funny the execution for the betrayal of his comrades because of his ideological uh presumption is completely warranted uh so it it makes sense as a story and it makes sense um as as literature because it's not really you know it's it's not really about the characters and how well developed they are is another thing about the the Turner Diaries, and you, and you can apply this to epic literature as well. The characters aren't as important, I think, as you would have in say an English novel. In a novel, a, a psychological novel of the English or American type, you expect the main character to be. It's very egoistic. You expect the main character to be the focus of all the of the whole novel, of the audience, of everything, and their motives are what drives the whole thing, and and. But in, in epic poetry and in the Turner Diaries, I think it's, it's fair to say, the drama is driven by the different motives of the different people. It's less focused on one person and more focused on, on, on different people and on the society as a whole and on building the society, which is the interesting question of, and the, uh, that the Turner Diaries addresses that most no novel addresses and that is you know the sort of question that most people in our society i think unfortunately do not understand so i think one could have a, a much more uh in-depth analysis of, of that but i'll just leave that with you to think about uh, i encourage you to read the nibelungenlied it's a, a great story it if you're interested in approaching it in german um well, let me start off with English. If you're interested in approaching it in English, the standard, there's, I think, two main translations. The one I read is um, Penguin Classics translated by a certain A.T. Haddo. A.T. Haddo was a, a Englishman, uh, Germanophile. He went to Germany. He married a Jewess during the war or right before the war or something like that. Um, but I don't know. His translation, I think, is fine. You get this sort of... Uh, I'm not going to say one translation is better than the other because I haven't read the other translation. Uh, there is another more modern one by somebody whose name escapes me. Uh, the purpose of a translation is to just get the story. I, I, I don't think there's sort of this tendency people will argue that, oh, this translation, you have to read this one. Or you have to read that one. I, I don't get hung up on that. A translation is a translation. If it gets you the story and you like reading it, good enough. Um, really, if you want to be, you know, an egghead about it, you should say the translation is the only purpose of the translation is to help you read the original. Um, 
But I mean, without even going to that level, I would just say the purpose of the translation is to get you to understand the idea. And if it does that, uh, and if it's a little bit unfaithful to, or if it isn't quite the, uh, it doesn't have the perfection of expression uh, of the original, well, nothing ever will. As far as reading it in German, uh, I have this version, uh, a, a middle high German text with the translation into modern German, which I've read some of. And it's, I think that's the way to do it. Unfortunately, as far as I know, there are no translations with middle high German original on one side and English on the other, um, as you might have for Beowulf with, with the old high, uh, old English and, and, uh, modern English. But you can get, uh, modern German with Middle German. And if you can read modern German reasonably well, then you can look at the the old German and, and sort of piece it together. There are some books available in English on Middle High German uh, by itself if you don't care about modern German and you actually are interested in the older literature. Uh, and the Nibelungenlied is not the only one by far. There's, um, I think I mentioned Parsifal and... Oh, Tristan is old. Um, there are two of the other big epics, or actually they're not epics. Nibelungenlied is an epic, but um, they're, they're long poems uh, in Middle High German. But um, the two, yes. Books on Middle High German and English, there are two. I'll post these down in the comment or in the uh, description, but uh, the. Probably the most common one is by a certain Walsh uh, called Middle High German. That one's not great. It provides an overview of German grammar, of Middle High German grammar, and then some small reading exercises. The better one is... Uh, I'll post it down below. There's a better one that actually is like a little course book um, that brings you through, explains the middle high German grammar and, and gives you some reading exercises and, and works you up to reading um, some actual literature. And it's, it's very interesting to try to do that. If you've, even if you've never studied a language before, uh, approaching it in the original, I think, is, is very fun and interesting. And it's better than playing um, Sudoku or, or word um, crossword puzzles. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this lecture. Uh, I admit I had to do it um, rather rushed. And I've never actually delivered a lecture before without an audience. So this is sort of a first for me. It's very weird to be talking to myself in a room like some kind of nut job. But I hope that I've um, given you some interesting information. And I look forward to seeing you next week. I think uh, we will be able to have William on. We're looking forward to talking about some other things. I think next week we will talk about the Nibelungenlied maybe more. Eh, I shouldn't say that. I won't promise anything. We might talk about it more and do some analysis um, or we might move on to something else. I am trying to work with Warren on producing some other episodes on some things, uh, topics related to Napoleon um, and to perhaps Machiavelli to get out of just doing German stuff. So those are some of the things to look forward to. Anyway, uh, thank you. And until next time, this one and see. Vorwärts, vorwärts, Jugend kennt keine Gefahren. Deutschland, du wirst leuchten stehen, mögen wir auch untergehen. Vorwärts, vorwärts, schmettern die hellen Fanfaren. Vorwärts, vorwärts, Jugend kennt keine Gefahren.
keine Gefahren, ist das Ziel auch noch so hoch. Jugend zwingt es doch. Unser Vaterland hat uns voran, in die Zukunft sind wir an für Mann. Wir marschieren für Wild, dann durch Nacht und durch Wurst, wenn der Vater der Wir gehören dir, wir Kameraden. 